So here we are, we're going to do ethics, um, ethics and professional responsibility. You'll get your one, um, I think compulsory, is it CPD point? Um, I don't think they call it MCLE anymore. Um, so what we'll look at, we'll go through some of the basic sort of rules and then what, we're, what we really want to do is sort of concentrate on issues that arise for um, lawyers here at Legal Aid. And then we're just going to, so we'll go through those, not in a lot of detail, but what we will ask you if there's anything in those um, issues that we raise, if you wanted further training on that, we, we can provide that training. And then in the end, we're just going to look at some of the three rules, um, issues that we see very stressed lawyers may run into trouble with some of these rules. Um, and so we sort of think that really does apply to um, a lot of our legal aid lawyers who are con constantly under pressure. Um, and we're going to put a case law that um, is relevant to those rules as well. So. Without further ado, Sally will do most of the talking. She's got the little speaker on her lapel, yeah. and we've got about 40 people, I think, in, um, around the yeah. regional areas. Now, because of the, the, the whole well. miking thing, it means that we've got one microphone because of the recording, which means that um, if it's not, if it sounds a bit like a monologue, it's you know, for practical reasons, and if people have a question or a comment, I will probably repeat it. Yeah. So and, and just before I do anything else, there's food outside for you latecomers. If you want to have some food, afternoon tea, we promised you to entice you here this afternoon to provide you with afternoon tea. Apologies to the webcam. <laughs> okay, so um, ethics and professional responsibility. When we talk about um, ethics, people's first thought seems to be professional misconduct, um, disciplinary type of proceedings. Um, this is a, a concept that's been around as long as there's been, you know, a Supreme Court or equivalent and solicitors where, where um, over time in, in just in general law, um, the, the uh, rules have developed about what's acceptable conduct for solicitors. Now, um, in ca captured by legislation and as it is now, it's in the legal profession uniform law. Um, we have... Uh, the concept of unsatisfactory professional conduct, which is uh, conduct um, that falls short of the standard of competence and diligence that um, you'd expect of a reasonably competent lawyer. So that's the sort of the, the lower level um, misconduct. And then professional misconduct, which is either um, a substantial failure to be competent and diligent or something else that's just um, the sort of conduct that would justify a finding that the person's not a fit and proper person to, to, to be a lawyer. So um, one of the things that, you, that, that uh, can be taken into account in deciding whether any of that's made out is um, all the cases and um, rules around whether, solicitor, whether somebody can be admitted as a solicitor or have their practicing certificate renewed. So you know, that's the kind of um, material that is drawn on. So. Um, in deciding whether a um, solicitor has uh, been guilty of unsatisfactory professional conduct or professional misconduct, um, they, there's a range of um, sort of conduct, forms of conduct um, listed there. It's sort of summarising that, that section, being insolvent, committing serious offences, various things. Um, but for our purposes today, um, contravening the uniform rules is... Um, one of the ways that uh, that people can be really clear about expectations. So, um, just to there's a lot of rules. Um, so, we'll, I'll just mention the I guess what the, the principal rule that sort of starts it off. Um, 
worth noting there that the purpose that a breach of these rules is um, capable of being unsatisfactory professional conduct or professional misconduct. Important to note there, capable of being. Um, a breach of a rule isn't, it's not like um, breaching a, um, a legislative you know, provision that has a penalty associated with it. It's not in itself um, unsatisfactory professional conduct, but it's part of a, a picture and it, and it may be. Um, then you've got, of course, your, your old classic um, paramount duty to the court and administration of justice. If you go through the rules, there's you know, various duties to clients, duties to the administration of justice, um, lots of specific rules dealing with specific situations that have risen over time, but that's the, you know, the principal sort of yardstick by which people's um, professional conduct is judged. And then the other fundamental ethical duties. And these can tend to look like they're um, just a kind of broad statement of principles and the real nuts and bolts, the real sort of substance is in the specific rules dealing with very specific conduct. But these fundamental rules, acting in the best interests of clients, being honest and courteous, um, competent, diligent, um, uh, avoiding um, compromise of integrity, those are actually quite often the basis of um, action by the Legal Services Commissioner um, in and disciplinary action based on those kind of broad rules because the sort of conduct that can be deemed to fall short of what you expect of solicitors can be so varied that sometimes it's a bit hard to fit it into a more specific rule but is captured by those sort of general, general principles there. So, um, you, you, you don't tend to probably um, you know, browse through uh, uh, disciplinary um, decisions or, or you know, read up about um, rules and that sort of thing, but if you are dealing with a, a practical situation and you um, want to sort of understand where you stand ethically, um, it's useful to know where, where you can go. Um, first place to start, um, the conduct rules because they have endeavoured to extract from the, the general law um, and put into you know, sort of practical terms that the standards that are expected of you. So if you, if you have a particular situation, if you look in the rules and you can find something that deals with it, that'll, that'll be you know, really precise and, and, and really sort of focus your mind on, on what's expected. Um, then the Law Society um, has some information. Uh, the Law Society has um, a website with a, a page um, that's got some ethics information, um, but as these things go, um, it's not the best. There's um, uh, the Law Institute of Victoria has a better website called an Ethics Hub, which has got a bit of you know useful resources. And and these are all all these states have the same rules. It's a uniform you know, it's national law, so you know we're all talking the same language. So what's available in um, these other websites is as good. Um, the Law Institute of Victoria has got some more material, but the sort of the, the gold standard is the Queensland Law Society's Ethics Centre, um, which is just jam-packed with useful stuff. I mean, it's, a, it's well worth a, a browse through there. The New South Wales one's got a few you know, documents that look like this. This is called Professional Ethics, Tactics and Communications with Clients, Frequently Asked Questions, something they put out last year. So they've got a few of these, but not the abundance of material that they have in Queensland where every time an ethical issue comes up, a new decision or something like that, 
there in there with a you know a, a little note about it. Um, great stuff. Great stuff. Um, now, particularly at the moment, I recommend you all have a look at the Law Council of Australia website. The Law Council of Australia is responsible for the uniform solicitors conduct rules and they were put out um, about 2012, um, 2013 perhaps adopted by the various states over the next couple of years and they're now reviewing them and in the process of reviewing them they've put out this uh, just in February this discussion paper review of the Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rules. It's a fantastic read. It's, um, it's got a whole lot of background material about you know, the, the case law and you know, the general principles. People have made submissions and they've discussed the various issues that have been raised. It's just very, very comprehensive and um, you know, well worth looking at about a particular rule if you're, if, if you're, um, if you're you know, trying to work out what to do in a particular situation. Um, that was put out in February and they're now... Sorry? Hello? Um, yeah, so, so this, is, this is like a consultation thing where they're, they're, look at, they're, they're reviewing the rules and so it, it's till May, it's um, open for, for comment, I'm, are we? Yeah, and we, um, as an organisation, we would have contributed to some of that discussion, so throughout the period from 2013 right up to now, um, we would have made submissions on various issues, like I think civil law are very keen on the 31 or 33 communicating with another person's client. We've obviously done submissions on the conflict, uh, confidentiality and that, but um, yeah. you might recognise so, some of the so, so in, in a lot of the um, yeah, discussion, if, if you have um, participated in the, the yeah. debate till now, you might recognise your issue that you've raised and, and how it is discussed by the by the Law Council. Also on the Law Council's website is the commentary to the rules which was um, um, produced at the time the rules were written, so that's got some sort of useful information as well. Of course, uh, the um, Solicitor's Manual, Riley's, that's um, got good, good stuff in it. Um, the um, um, main sort of uh, resource on uh, um, lawyers' professional responsibility is that um, book by Gino Del Pont, which is much quoted in um, judicial decisions and you know anyone who's ever talking about lawyers professional responsibilities goes to that we're getting pretty detailed here but, um, and if that's you know I'm sure you're all busy and if that's beyond you know what, what what's reasonable to spend on resolving these issues we suggest you contact us because um, if it's the kind of um, ethical situation that arises in the legal aids practice um, we're likely to have seen it before and we're more likely to be conscious of the you know, factors at play rather than um, some, something like the Law Society. Oh, because obviously the Law Society as well as their ethics page also has an assistance line where you can ring up and one of the um, staff of the ethics unit there can give you some information. Um, or you can refer things to the ethics committee for some, from, for some guidance. But um, the, both the staff of the ethics unit and the ethics um, committee don't have an understanding of the peculiarities of legal aid, so you'll tend to get something a bit more generic um, where we would be able to recognise the um, other factors at play. So always, always happy to hear about a, a, an ethical problem. Okay, so on that note, um, one of the things about the, the fact that you're working at legal aid is there's a whole range of ethical issues that don't come up. 
Um, if you look at the, the sort of ethical issues that end up in court, end up in disciplinary tribunals, um, they're quite often about solicitors um, and charging and overcharging or not explaining their charging, um, mixing their affairs with those of their clients, lending money, borrowing money, um, that kind of thing, which um, isn't on the whole a, a, an issue that, that we have to deal with. Um, there's uh, factors for solicitors in private practice that aren't a problem for us. Um, they say conveyancing is a is fertile ground for ethical problems, not something that, that we deal with. Probate, conveyancing and probate are probably the um, you know, biggest sources of, of um, ethical sort of problems, not, not something that we have to deal with. But um, for um, people working at legal aid, there are, um, I, I suppose, ethical issues that are more likely to um, arise because of the, the, the nature of the practice that we have here. For example, the type of work we do, crime generates um, issues around um, acting for co-accused, uh, cross-examining clients that you might have some familiarity with, uh, um, clients who say they're not guilty and want to plead guilty, clients who say they're guilty and want to plead not guilty. You know, there's there's a whole there's a whole range of um, of, of issues there. Family law has um, a lot of a lot of um, sort of ethical issues are because often you have unrepresented clients on the other side. There's um, factors around you know, child protection and that sort of thing. So there's uh, there's issues there. Um, civil, the nature of the work that's that's done in civil, a lot of um, a lot of the work that they do with particularly disadvantaged clients. So understanding the nature of the solicitor-client relationship can, can sort of come into focus. I know we we get complaints arising out of that where there's been misunderstandings about what the you know, solicitor's actually you know, proposing to service that's actually been provided. So um, that's something that you know we we are, we are conscious of just because you know, of matters that are referred to, to us for, for advice. Um, one of the perhaps the most significant things here is that we do a lot of short services. Um, the, the the sort of classic concept of the solicitor-client relationship is the idea of an entire retainer where the client comes in and tells you the problem. You say, well, the way to resolve that is to um, sort of proceedings in a particular court, um, right? And then the expectation is that you will then represent them right through that process. Um, and they will then pay you the, the um, costs that you have disclosed to them as, as being payable for that service. We provide a lot of um, services that are uh, limited, that they, we provide advice with minor assistance duty work, um, that makes a difference it, because um, it's, it's more, more difficult to um, have be of one mind with the client about exactly what you're, you're doing for them and so there's plenty of scope there to, to be complaints that what you have delivered is not you know, what you promised, is not what they understood they were going to get. Um, of course we have a particular type of client group. Um, we have clients that um, a lot of clients where capacity may be a concern and there's a whole um, field of sort of ethical issues around having clients where there might be some issue around whether they are capable of giving instructions whether they're capable of um, entering a plea there's just you know um, reams of stuff and, and, and we do get questions around those issues also um, our clients tend to be fairly unsophisticated about the legal system um, as opposed to um, a lot of clients who might be um, 
regular users of legal services and have a, an understanding of how it works. Um, we have clients who maybe are less familiar and you know, the language and assumptions may miss the mark and clients may um, have expectations that aren't met. We have a lot of clients who are particularly disadvantaged and so um, and have a lot of problems outside the particular issue that we're helping them with and so the extent to which we have responsibilities beyond the specific service we're providing can, can raise concerns as well. Um, and another unusual thing about legal aid is the fact that we are interested in law reform and a lot of the lit litigation we run, a lot of the matters that we, clients that we act for, we're looking at um, possible test cases, um, we're looking at um, identifying systemic issues, maybe um, making submissions to law reform bodies, drawing on the experience of our clients. We work with um, partners in doing this, some of the um, you know, community legal centres or pro bono law firms where we're sort of sharing information and um, I suppose campaigning together. And that runs into issues of um, possible confidentiality issues as you work with other agencies to um, make, a, make a, a, a change in the law, the extent to which um, clients' expectations may not be met if they're only obviously focused on their particular matter, whereas you might be seeing them as part of a, a, a bigger picture and so um, there, there can be a disappointed client who thought that you were doing something more for them than you were. So that makes a, makes a difference to, to, to how you have to work with the client. Of course, the Legal Aid Commission Act is a big one because um, as well as um, be having a solicitor-client relationship, um, Legal Aid is also, um, a, has made a grant under our Act, so the person has a grant of Legal Aid that has conditions um, associated with it. The Act imposes certain responsibilities on them and on us, and that sort of coexists with the, the solicitor-client relationship under the um, professional um, uh, practice law, so um, you know it's, it's sometimes can be you know, hard to remain conscious of both those relationships. And then, of course, um, the fact that we are a New South Wales government agency makes um, things a little bit, a um, little bit different because if you hear about um, responsibilities and obligations of solicitors, um, that may may not. Um, sort of show the full picture if we have other responsibilities and obligations imposed on us as a, as a government agency. And where this classically arises is, say, in solicitors who are asked to forward their file onto um, a new solicitor who's now acting for the client. Um, if you ask the Law Society, um, and if you were going to ask the Law Society, I suggest you ask the Queensland Law Society because they've got a splendid little summary on the on their ethics um, centre about what documents you would have to hand over in those circumstances, what are the client's documents, what are your documents, um, and uh, anyone who was asked to provide um, a copy of the file to the new solicitor would probably um, go to that and, and separate things out into, well, that's um, you know, documents I've prepared for the proceedings, they're the clients, these are my file notes, they're mine. But that ignores the fact that legal aid, as a New South Wales government agency, is subject to GIPA legislation, privacy legislation, and therefore might be required to provide documents beyond what you have to provide as a solicitor. So there's a 
there's a, um, a, a complication there that people have to deal with. The, the, <coughs> sorry, the other issue as well for <coughs> evade is sometimes people say, for example, in merit advice, you might get a merit advice on whether there's um, merit and whether you're going to grant aid, and often people get confused as to whether that merit advice belongs to legal aid or belongs to the client. So those issues as well. So anything you pay for is on behalf of the client. So even though it's a merit to decide whether the person's eligible for aid, the merit advice is actually <coughs> the client's information and the client's confidential information. So it can't be shared around the organisation that sometimes people think they can do. Um, but it's actually the client's confidential information um, and it shouldn't be disclosed. So that is another sort of complicating issue for us here. So that, the, the thing with um, ad advices and reports that we get is a, a bit sort of highlights the, the problem of relying on um, information that's available to solicitors generally about their obligations. Um, if you read any information about what, what from your file has to be provided to the client, it will say anything such as reports um, that the client has paid for. And we've had numerous cases where solicitors have said, well, the client didn't pay for this medical report or this advice because they have a grant of legal aid and legal aid paid for it. So that goes in the keep pile, yeah. um, where obviously if they ask us, we would say that has been paid for on behalf of the client by their grant of legal aid. Um, is that subtle um, understanding, I suppose, of, of the distinction between um, a person acting under a grant of legal aid and, and, and a private practitioner that makes it worthwhile, you know, talking to someone in, the, in, in, in our unit rather than going straight to the, the law society and having them just run through the, the standard sort of information that they would give anybody. So one of the things that we um, were contemplating was the possibility of um, further training, further um, information being made available about um, legal, um, legal aid specific ethical concerns and we would be quite um, happy, delighted to hear from anyone who um, you know, wants to bring our attention to something that they think needs addressing. So I don't know whether having just given you that bit of a snapshot of the things that we're aware of, whether anyone's uh, um, inclined to... Should we be giving disclaimers when we're doing those short advices? Wow. Oh, you are, you are hitting very a topic. very... Very hot topic that at the moment. <laughs> yes, because um, we because something because you do something every day, you um, assume you're providing a service that everybody understands. Um, but if you look at a, a standard legal service, we're, we're providing an atypical legal service, and our obligations as a solicitor to our client, um, we don't have to provide a um, start to finish representation service. You know, we're open to agree to any service we like, but we have to disclose what the service we're providing and they have to say, yes, I understand that and I'm happy to receive that service on that, that, lim that limited basis. Um, and obviously that's being communicated generally, um, but we see enough examples, I suppose, of disappointed clients who perhaps didn't quite understand that, that um, yes, the, the, the idea of perhaps being a little bit more um, you know, expressing it just a little bit more explicitly what what the service is rather than just sort of relying on this um, you know, just sort of common understanding so we are looking at that we wouldn't expect you to um, off your own bat try and uh, try and do that but just just an awareness that you know what you understand might not be understood by by the clients and and it's also quite useful um, not just from 
um, the client's point of view, but from the solicitor's point of view, because if you can be really clear in your own mind and communicate that to the client and have you both agree on what you're doing for that person, um, there's less likely to be a complaint from a disappointed client and there's less likely to be a solicitor getting more and more stressed because they don't know where this ends and they can end up continuing to provide a service because they haven't been very clear in their own mind and so the client's continuing with ex an expectation that they're involved and they, because they haven't been clear in their own mind about what they're doing, they can get sort of dragged on and on and on and we've seen that and, and um, it's always a solicitor who wants to go the extra mile for the client and um, so that's why we feel particularly bad that it so often ends in a very angry client, a disappointed client, making a complaint um, after, a client, after the solicitor has, you know, at enormous personal cost has you know, really you know, done an awful lot for the person. So yeah, for the solicitor's sake as well, if you're saying, you know, at the front, okay, I, I understand your issue, this is the nature of this service. So, th so it's a sort of a two-step thing. This is, this is the nature of what legal aid service is. You know, this is, what we, this is what legal aid does for its clients generally. And having heard, you know, what the situation, this is what I can do for you. Um, and, and have that, have that sort of recognised that it's not going to be um, on forever. In the same way that you, it's also subject, to say if you're acting for somebody under a grant of legal aid, it's only if they have a grant of legal aid. You won't be able to act for them if they, if they don't. Um, so, so yes, there's, there's definitely scope for a little bit more um, explicit information around we're that. We're particularly looking at it and interested in it because I'm not sure if you're aware, we're looking at new conflict guidelines and information barriers, so that'll actually be quite a significant shift that'll occur in the next few months or so, and you'll all become aware of it. But as part of that, defining those services, short services, will be really uh, such an important part of that. So, um, so having that understanding, and we'll be much clearer about that in our application forms to clients and, and, and what we mean by, by that service, yeah. Okay. Now, um, a lot of the um, ethical issues we can talk about are perhaps um, specific to, you know, I mean, there's ethical issues associated with people who provide outreach services and people who provide duty services. Criminal lawyers have, you know, some issues that don't apply to anyone one else. So um, rather than going into um, a discussion of specific rules, I did think because um, for you know, work I've been doing recently, I've been having to read a lot of these disciplinary type of um, decisions, and some people have just behaved appallingly, um, and there can be a lot of people who've, you know, it's um, sometimes hilariously gross incompetence, um, and sometimes it's, you know, uh, exploiting clients and, um, you know, not a problem at all, but there were some of these um, disciplinary matters where I found myself feeling very sorry for the practitioner and um, I sort of realised that the, one of the, one of the um, main reasons that I would be reading a decision thinking I feel very sorry for this solicitor is, is because it became apparent that solicitors who are under a great deal of pressure, where there's a lot of stress, high expectations, unreasonably heavy workloads, unsupportive workplace, um, lack of um, training, um, find themselves in situations where they do things that breach the rules and end up with disciplinary proceedings and um, it, um, it can't help but thinking that 
you know, had, had uh, there been a little bit more support earlier on, that, that might have been avoided. So I thought what I would talk about um, was three areas of um, ethics that seem, that, and, and what they have in common is um, that these are, thing, where, these, are, <coughs> these are areas where things can go wrong because people have that, that pressure and they take a shortcut or, you know, I mean, just in that, in that stress of trying to, trying to you know, cope with a, a difficult situation. So the first of these is, which is um, courtesy. Um, it's a fairly fundamental thing that um, solicitors have to be um, courteous. Um, but oddly enough, yeah, people, uh, solicitors do get um, charged with unsatisfactory pro professional conduct. Uh, not professional misconduct, I, I don't think, but for, for um, you know a certain degree of um, rudeness to you know solicitors from the other side, and and also to clients as well. Um, so it's uh, something something to bear in mind because a lot of the time it's the that that frustration of people who are under a lot of pressure, um, and people who feel, feel feel very passionately about the the work that they're doing. So. Um, I thought that uh, I'll just give you an example of um, it, so the type of thing that might happen at, at legal aid. So this is a, um, a care matter, I think, and um, the, the uh, I mean the rudeness. In, it didn't even strike me as being particularly bad. Um, the person, no, I'm sorry, this was a family law matter. Um, the, uh, well, maybe I'll give you the, the care one. What do they say in the care one? So this is a care, a care matter. So, you know, it seems like a um, dedicated practitioner in the care jurisdiction said um, the lowest act of any, de <laughs> he described, described um, something that the, the uh, department had done, the lowest act of any department this office has seen, certainly the lowest act I have seen in 35 years by the department. Um, one ha has only to go through what the department has said and what appears in newspapers to see that one cannot trust the department. It is almost staffed by animals. Um, so, and then, then there was a, an order made um, that the children undergo psychological treatment. I put it that you are asking the client, my client, to let her children be killed or destroyed by the, the nominated doctor. And, the um, and that the children should be returned to my client and not, <laughs> and not put in the hands of these people who are almost like a coven of witches. <laughs> okay, so um, anyway. Um, in, this was um, this was in the court. So so this is in, this is in Queensland. Um, they, the magistrate mi mildly admonished the solicitor. If you continue using language like that, he said, I will report you to the law society. Um, and then uh, that, that is that is in fact what happened. So anyway. Um, you, see, you can hear the frustration. You can, you know, do, you know. It's, it's. There's no self-interest there. It's, um, it's a person who's stressed and, you know, can't can't cope that well. Um, and um, it, the 
magistrate did in fact report it to the Law Society and he ended up um, being found guilty of unsatisfactory professional conduct or whatever it then was. This is before the current act, I think it was just called um, unprofessional conduct. Um, and ordered to um, undertake some counselling and be publicly reprimanded and pay, pay costs, $1,500, and for the next 12 months um, only act as a supervised solicitor. So, um, you know, that's, uh, that's what, what happens. Um, the um, other one was in a family law matter um, where writing to the solicitor on the other side um, said, you know, similar kind of nasty stuff. Um, the children's issues are never going to be resolved at the mediation. The likelihood is that your client and her family have done so much damage to the child that my, that my client will never have a meaningful relationship with his daughter. Your client will live to regret that in the future when the child grows up and becomes as dysfunctional as your client is. Um, so, um, but... <laughs> but lest, lest that be, the co co cause you to become overly concerned, um, it's worth considering the case of a, another solicitor um, who, who had an unsatisfactory professional conduct um, finding guilty um, by the relevant tribunal, the Legal Practitioners Disciplinary Tribunal, this is in the ACT, and then appealed to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court upheld the appeal and said that um, the, uh, the, 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 this, now this was an interesting solicitor, he, um, he had some ongoing issue with the Department of Education. His wife was a teacher and had had some unsatisfactory dealings with about a medical retirement, I, I think. Um, and so, um, so you know, he, he, had a, he had a personal interest. Um, what did he say that was particularly nice? Uh, that is consistent, as we say, with years of malpractice and maladministration by your organisation. It appears that nothing would change that conduct and that the department bears grudges against people who engage lawyers, particularly competent ones. Um, this is something he wrote to the um, CEO of the Department of Education. And he was acting for his wife. No, no, he wasn't. It's just oh, that, that, oh, sorry, that, I was just giving that as the background. Just giving that, that as the background, that he, oh, okay. he had a personal you know, sense of grievance oh. about the department anyway, okay. and he's now acting for a, for a client in a, in a similar type of matter, somebody who wants um, a, some kind of uh, you know, reti medical, medical retirement. Um, uh, in my brief encounters with officers of your agency, they have been rude, unhelpful, obsessive and compulsive in relation to their own ego and their own self-importance and otherwise unresponsive. So, anyway, that kind of thing. And um, the, as I say, unprofessional conduct, but not so, says the, the Supreme Court. Um, they feel that... Um, they go on to say that, um, yes, it is important to uphold um, principles of professional courtesy, but um, the right, indeed the duty of a solicitor to represent his or her client's interests forthrightly and without fear or favour um, shouldn't diminish. Such a communication may well be regarded as discourteous and provocative, but nevertheless a subject that needs to be raised in the interest of the client as well as generally. Um, it was... Um, relevant that he was writing to the CEO saying he thought that their department um, 
comment, a fair comment, obviously, they felt on the way that the department was run. Um, and they also, also referred to, you know, obviously, sometimes you have to write to, to a solicitor on the other side, um, suggesting that, or, or if the person's not yet represented, writing directly to a person, suggesting that they're guilty of some sort of misconduct, fraud or whatever. Um, and that's part of your, your role as a solicitor. So, um, you know, it's uh, not saying that you have to be excessively you know, reticent about, you know, pointing out um, issues with the other side's case, as long as you stop short of the, the kind of stuff that, um, well, the, the kind of thing that the, the earlier two solicitors did. So um, I thought that was a, a, a small um, bit of, bit of uh, positiveness <laughs> about this, um, because when you read these um, disciplinary matters, sometimes you get the feeling that uh, this, the poor solicitor never wins, never wins. Um, so, courtesy. Um, I don't know, I, because we're not in the um, office with you when you were, I don't know whether you were in, driven in frustration to pen the intemperate letter. Um, if so, take a breath, take a walk around the block. Um, the, the other issue as well is be careful if you're inclined to write some file notes. That may not be, um, you know, if you kind of sort of think about it, you may not have written those file notes because, again, as a public organisation, they can be gibbered and we would have to hand them over. We couldn't refuse to hand them over. And that can sometimes end in a bit of grief if there's something intemperate in those file notes. So just be mindful. Um, yes, and so, oh, and just the, the, these solicitor and the family law proceedings, um, uh, who also said um, that she'd spent money in their, in their joint bank account. Um, given the manner in which the funds under her control have been depleted, um, she spent $43,000 in what appears to be a few days. That seems an excessive rate of expenditure, even for your client, uh, who has already spent over $180,000 in joint funds in the last 12 months. Um, I, you know, I mean, I thought that was a bit harsh. Uh, that practitioner was fined, publicly reprimanded and fined or required to pay costs of two and a half thousand dollars, um, so you know it's worth it's worth taking, taking a deep breath. Um, so um, another area where you can see the stress in the background of, of these circumstances is when solicitors mislead the court. Um, there's a general rule that. that um, well, you know, the, the, the general rules that I mentioned earlier of the being honest and what have you, but there's also a specific rule that solicitors must not knowingly or recklessly mislead the court. Um, and uh, a couple of examples of, of that, which um, I think are, um, are the, kind of, the kind of situation where you can sort of see the, the, the stress at play. We have here a... Um, a family law solicitor, um, there's a, um, the mother's come to see him saying that um, the father has engaged, so, the, so the, there's currently interim orders, the, the child's living with the mother and um, time with the father. Um, the mother comes to see her saying that um, the father has engaged in a sexually inappropriate matter which has been reported. Um, then the father um, filed an ex parte application and affidavit on the mother's behalf, um, then when 
then the, then the um, solicitors acting for the father um, contacted him and said that the, the, the solicitor for mother just to introduce themselves and said we're now acting for the father. Um, the solicitor acting for the mother obviously in the rush of this didn't act, tell those solicitors that he had made the ex parte application. So when, um, when he turned up for court, the, um, the magistrate the, sorry, the uh, what do you call it, a judge said, is the father aware of this application? And then, no, he's not, Your Honour, of course. Um, the, then the um, judge said, why is that? Um, and this is when he sort of fudged, I suppose. Um, he said, because it was brought on ex parte and I have only just got the documents back today in any event. Um, sorry, what was that? Asked the bench. I only received the sealed, sealed copies of the documents back this morning. So, you know, he just kind of slid around it and went on to discuss other things. So, didn't um, disclose that, in fact, the, a solicitor had contacted him saying he was acting for the father, didn't disclose to that solicitor the application was brought on. Um, didn't, um, and also there's something in the family, well, you family lawyers will probably know, there's something in the family law legislation that means if you're making an ex parte application, you're supposed to s disclose things that are contrary to your case, which, which he didn't do. But um, uh, I think, well, you can see that happening. Actually, we see this happening in um, applications when, when matters that we're considering about our, some of our private practitioners where, for whatever reason, you've been a bit rushed, you haven't covered everything, and then you're in court and the magistrate asks a sort of awkward question. And um, we get, see, we get some tra transcripts about private practitioners who are um, on panels who where there's some suggestion that they might have done, done something wrong. Um, and you can always sort of see the moment when they realise that, oh, they hadn't done that, and instead of just sort of coming out with a frank, oh, I, I have overlooked doing that or, or whatever, they do that kind of fudging thing of, you know, making a non-answer to the question and kind of moving the, uh, moving the um, topic over, over somewhere else. Seems a minor thing. He, he thought it was a minor thing. Hmm? Oh, yeah, well, yes, because solicitors do that. They, they, they say they only, they've only just got the, the, the matter. Yeah, only, the matter's only just been assigned to them because everyone says, oh, well, that legal aid, of course, yes, it wouldn't be your fault, it would be them. Um, so that kind of sort of slight fudging of people who you know, aren't quite prepared. Um, so obviously what he should have done when um, the, uh, the, the judge said, is the father aware of the application? No, why not? Is that um, I overlooked letting him know. I haven't told him, I could have done so, I know he has a solicitor acting in the matter, whatever, but no, he just kind of um, seemed to me a fairly minor sort of thing, but um, not, um, not in the mind of um, the, the uh, Queensland Civil and Administrative Tribunal, who um, ordered that he be publicly reprimanded, um, a pecuniary penalty of $5,500, undertake a remedial ethics course, and pay the Legal Services Commissioner's costs. Um, and this one struck me because we get sent these transcripts of um, issues raised by um, magistrates, raised by other parties. It seems to happen a lot. People are on the spot. They've, they've had an urgent matter. It's been one of those sort of rush into court matters like, like, like this. Um, and obviously he should have told the solicitor for the other side what was going on and you can just see it didn't happen and he knew he should have and instead of just saying uh, obviously I should have and I didn't, they just do that little bit of uh, worth, worth um, bearing in mind the, the, the consequences of that. Now, 
Another example of the misleading the court is another um, classic situation that arises. Um, which is this one? This is a person who missed a date to file an appeal, and she had to put in on an um, ap application to have the appeal accepted out of time. Can't remember what jurisdiction it was in. Supported by an affidavit, and she has obviously run off her feet. Young practitioner, fairly recently admitted. She'd been, she was admitted in January 2010, and the. Um, Oh, she was not just admitted. She was. She still hadn't been admitted this stage. This was still in 2000, late 2009. Um, she um, was um, acting in the matter, big workload, debt, debt recovery practice as a paralegal, um, and missed this, you know, lodging the appeal. Um, so she had to, in her, in her affidavit, in support of her request for the, um, her application for the um, appeal to be accepted out of time, she said that um, something had got lost in the mail and had arrived late. It hadn't, as was evident from her own affidavit, which had other material that showed that that wasn't the case at all, but she just slipped in something to, you know, felt bad, slipped in something just to kind of hopefully push this over the line because otherwise she was going to have to explain to the client. Um, but she was caught out and um, was uh, required to practice under supervision and what have you, um, fine, publicly reprimanded, um, a fine of $7,000 and costs of $1,500. Um, and I mean, I've done work in civil litigation and I can just see it happening, so, you know. Um, and so, really, um, I guess it's a workload problem and the feeling that solicitors have that they're they're on their own and obviously um, you are on your own when it comes to the disciplinary action, when it comes to professional responsibility, you, you are on your own then, but you're not on your own in, in your practice and if it's not possible to do the work without, you know, feeling the pressure to cut corners like this, um, you know, it needs to be addressed before, before it gets to that stage because, um, uh, you know, I mean, you shouldn't, you, sh you shouldn't be actually working in such a way that, that you, you are unable to you know, perform the the, um, the work to a satisfactory standard, and um, and it sounds to me in this case that the, the the solicitors were put in a position where they they really were were struggling. So um, deal with it early. Deal with it early. Talk to a supervisor. Say I have too many files. Some of them are getting out of hand. I'd be concerned what might be ha happening on them. Don't just try to keep the matters going and then find out later. Because we, I mean, it, it happens, I know, because we get lots of calls, I mean, you get lots of calls too, of dates missed, you know, just little things like that. And you know it's because of, of, of the workload, so, you know, you really need to address that before, before things go bad. Now, the final category of, um, of misconduct that you can see um, occurring in the world of the busy solicitor, is um, people bodgily witnessing documents. Witnessing documents can be a, a real time thing where the client's got to come in and, and you're there and you've, you've probably got it down to the wire of when things are going to get done and if there's a little glitch, then, you know, you, you and what, what do you do? You, sometimes you might feel tempted to take a shortcut. 
So let me tell you about, about um, this solicitor called Bentley, who needed to um, file an affidavit in a matter um, on behalf of his client, and the client was overseas at the time, um, pursuing the matter, trying to locate a witness. So, um, the, he had a, so he had a conversation with the client while the client was overseas and sent him the uh, um, draft affidavit and went through it in quite a bit of detail um, about whether he wanted changes and that sort of thing and asked him to read it while over the phone and did the whole how you would, how you would swear an affidavit but he was, he was in Queensland and the client was in Hungary. But he went through. He went through the material, explained everything he would. Did it? Did it? Textbook. The client then signed the um, signed the affidavit and sent it back. And when it arrived, our solicitor signed as a witness and signed said that it was executed on the day of the telephone conversation. In his mind, well, that was when that was when it was. He did witness it. He says, apart from not being in the same room, he felt that he had witnessed it. Not so said the um, Queensland Civil and Administrative Tribunal um, and that solicitor was also publicly reprimanded, ordered to pay a $2,000 fine and ordered to pay costs. Um, I actually thought it was quite creative, um, but, but there you go. So, um, you know, uh, now this, this other example of the, of the witnessing um, is something that 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 uh, I can also see happening, and this one just to finish on a to finish on a very you know close to home note. This was a legal aid solicitor, um, ACT ACT legal aid. So the solicitor was um, assisting a client um, to lodge. Um, it's something that if anyone here does immigration law where you can make an application for some form of visa where you're a victim of domestic violence and you otherwise don't have a right to, to stay and you have to file a statutory declaration setting out a, a lot of quite detailed information about your circumstances and this solicitor had had conferences with the client and got all the relevant information um, and had completed the stat deck um, and had finished that um, just before she was about to embark on nine weeks leave. So the document had to be filed within that time. So what she did was signed it as witness, then posted it to the client and asked her to sign, sign the stat deck and then send it back and asked one of the admin people in the um, ACT Legal Aid Commission to when it arrived to file it. Um, I somebody was a bit concerned about that because it didn't ultimately get filed at all. Um, it was never used. The, I think the, um, the admin person probably asked some question about it from another practitioner who realised that this was all very odd and um, in, in the end it wasn't, wasn't used. Um, but notwithstanding that, um, the um, solicitor was found to be guilty of unsatisfactory professional conduct for the um, saying that she was, a wit she was witnessing the person signing this um, when she actually hadn't witnessed the signature. No, no suggestion there was anything wrong with the content, but she had not, she had not, had the she had not asked the client to go through and make sure it was correct. She just asked her to sign it, having 
recorded there what the client had said earlier. Um, so the, the solicitor was publicly rep reprimanded in order to pay the, the um, costs of the, uh, the law society. So, um, and you can imagine... Well, I don't want you to take um, a dislike to our friends at the ACT Legal Aid Commission, um, but um, the, it was provided to an unnamed um, employee of, of, of legal aid, um, who, and then um, not further actioned, but brought to the attention of someone who appointed Clayton Utes for some reason to investigate the matter. And Clayton Utes did and provided a report which found that on the balance of probabilities, our poor solicitor was guilty of misconduct in, you know, in the, under their legislation. Under, um, their, and so she resigned her employment and the matter was referred by the Legal Aid Commission to the Law Society. So, yeah. um, which when I read that, I thought, you can just imagine, you can just imagine this person's got an Un intolerable workload, and they're cause if they if they've got right up to their, you know, five o'clock on the afternoon before they're going on on leave, and they're still trying to keep keep matters, you know, like trying to get on, to, and then you know they're just trying to do what they can, and these are decisions made quickly. You know, you can imagine this big long list of things to be done, tr trying to make decisions quickly about oh, how, what am I going to do about, about this, I'll, you know, and finding you know quick what seem like practical solutions, right? That got that one sorted, move on to the next thing. You can just see how that would have happened. Um, and yet, you know, when it comes down to it, um, when obviously the ACT Legal Aid Commission was looking at it, they're just looking at that conduct in, in isolation, in effect. The, um, and when it comes to the tribunal, you know, you're just looking at that. And, and obviously, she herself looking at that would have thought, well, obviously, that's not right. I mean, I, a stat deck, I'm saying I, I should have any, in any event had the, the client go through make, and made sure that it actually correctly reflected their, their, um, their instructions, she would know that. Obviously, she would know that. But um, you don't know that when you're rushing to get things done and, and it just seems like a good practical solution to a, to a, to a problem. So um, obviously, I, I would not be an appropriate person to sit on these disciplinary tribunals because I'd let everybody off because I can just see you know, that it's a, a um, result of the, the system that the people are working in and the, and the workload they have and um, the fact that a lot of this legal stuff is really, really time consuming, you know, you've got to, it, it takes, you know, get the client in, get their instructions, um, go through things again with them and when you've got too many files to, 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 to handle, you know, you've, and you see a quick way that doesn't have any practical, doesn't disadvantage the client at all, doesn't have any, you know, you don't see, see it as a, an ethical issue, you don't, you don't, you know, study the Oaths Act and say, ah, yes, I suppose te technically I have um, contravened the, the Oaths Act. You are just thinking, well, that'll get the job done. So, um, yet, and yet, when, when you end up in the, um, the tribunal, here it would be the, the NCAT, you'd find yourself. Um, there isn't, I mean, that might be relevant to penalty because you, you, if it was understood that, you know, you were working under a lot of pressure, it might be more the, the pay the um, legal services commissioners costs rather than the you know the ten thousand dollar fine, but you know ultimately you've had to go through that process and it's included um, a reprimand. And as you can see, these are usually public public reprimands. Um, it's uh, it's there regardless of the 
workplace factors that might have, have um, resulted in that happening. So um, on that gloomy note, um, I would say uh, um, any, any, so that's why don't be a, you know, don't be a martyr, no. address workload issues, Make, make sure you have proper supervision. A lot, of, a lot of these issues arise when new young solicitors aren't supervised. Um, the obvious reason why so many of these disciplinary matters arise with sole practitioners, because people don't have support as a sole practitioner. If you're working in a similar situation here without that kind of support where you, people can, um, you know, you can talk things through with people, you can say you have too much to do, um, you know, you need to, you need to deal with it before before it gets to that because you know it's just um, obviously I mean we see, we see them we see them and, and you know you know it was workload was the reason so um, do something about that legal aid and um, <laughs> and then these things wouldn't happen so that's uh, any does anybody have any questions about this you're all looking gloomy now <laughs> it's very late on a Friday afternoon <laughs> Yeah, but we can do sort of like as I said during the year. What we'll do is we'll sort of put out questions to your sort of senior, you know, your exec teams and stuff like that. And we can do really practical sort of um, training for for teams and stuff like that. So that that can be really helpful, um, you know, um, making sure these sort of things don't happen. Well, to put it in a in in, in a more positive context, um, people think that if if they just work harder, do more, um, that's fine. But if you understand that you're running the risk that what you're doing is, is putting you at risk of this, that should give you um, more confidence to say, I cannot do this. It's not that I am unwilling, it's not that I'm prepared to, it's just there are not enough hours in the day for me to ensure that I meet my professional obligations and I will end up doing something that's, um, that's professional misconduct. So it's not, um, look at it more as a, um, as a, a, a a reason to address it and you know avoid avoid these situations arising you know, because I know people think it's it's something that they you know they can just keep doing well no this is this is what will happen it's and it's not sustainable and these are all well-meaning people and um, they were working very hard and it, it happens so working very hard is not enough all right thank you Sally that was really good